From PRI, it's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. How chemicals that disrupt the hormone system can reduce fertility and more. Those men who have poor reproductive function, say low sperm count, several studies have now shown that their overall mortality is higher. In other words, they will die earlier. The dangers endocrine disruptors pose for men's health. Also, fish farms in China aim to clean up their operations and reassure consumers in both the U.S. and at home. Put a camera system into the farm area. A customer who buys a bag of fish, you have a QR code on the bag, run your smartphone through our QR code on the bag, and you will have a chance to see the actual farm that raised this fish in your bag. How both high-tech and traditional practices could make farm fish safer. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. More than a half century ago, Rachel Carson sounded the alarm about the effects that a chemical could have on reproduction. In Silent Spring, she was concerned about DDT's impact on thinning the eggs of birds such as eagles and brown pelicans. Well, today researchers in Taiwan are sounding the alarm about chemicals that are sharply reducing human sperm counts there. These chemicals are known as endocrine disruptors, and they can mimic or interfere with the natural hormones that control growth and a body's immune system, neurological functioning, and fertility. Studies from Denmark a quarter century ago showed that sperm counts had declined by about a half from a generation earlier. Now the Taiwanese team has found that semen quality and quantity sampled from sperm donors have deteriorated even more in recent years, a change that is linked to endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And epidemiologist Shauna Swan says these chemicals are everywhere. Chemicals that make plastics soft, which are phthalates, or chemicals that make plastics hard, like bisphenol A, or chemicals that are flame retardants, chemicals like, that are in Teflon and so on, pesticides, many, many classes of chemicals that are in our daily lives all the time. Dr. Swan studies endocrine disruptors and their effects at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And years ago, I talked with her about the Danish semen quality study, so I called her up again to relate the new study from China to the earlier research. So the study you talked about from many years ago was a study actually 25 years ago, 1992, by Elizabeth Carlson, who was working with Neil Skekebeck. And that was a, I would say, a landmark study. And what they said in that study was that sperm counts had declined 50% in the 50 years prior to that study. And this was pretty dramatic. There was nothing said about the cause of that decline at that time, but just that this was a considerable concern. Now, 25 years later, we're seeing that this has not gone away, despite all the arguments to the contrary, people who had not accepted that initial finding. And we are still asking why, but we have increasing evidence that chemicals in the environment play a significant part in that decline, if not producing it. And just how much of a reduction is this Taiwanese study suggesting we're experiencing now? Well, the Taiwanese study, I believe, said that something like only 20% of men who were previously suitable for their sperm donor bank would make it in now. There's a similar study actually from Israel found almost the same numbers 
And because you have to keep the quality high to bring people in for assisted reproduction, if the quality is going down, and we see the quality going down because the WHO standards for what's a normal sperm has gotten lower and lower over the years. So I would say it's probably not just China or Israel or Denmark. It's probably many places in the world, although probably not all. And it's probably not equally a problem in all countries in the world, but it is a problem. And what do you think the odds are that it's affecting the quality of sperm here in the United States? I think that's pretty certain that semen quality has gone down in the United States. We have many U.S. studies. I personally have been involved in several of them. I would say we have very good evidence that male reproductive health, not just semen quality, by the way, is in trouble. And this has consequences, not just for the ability to have a child, but it also impacts the health of the man. So I think this is like a canary in the coal mine that it's indicating there is a problem with male health focusing on reproductive health, but having impacts on the entire health of the male. What problems are you thinking of? Well, the immediately related problems are those that are linked to the function of the testes. There's a lot of evidence now that when the male is in utero, the development of the testes governs a lot of what happens in the reproductive tract. And when you have problems with that testicular development, you can get in a whole array of things which have been called now the testicular dysgenesis syndrome. It includes low sperm count, infertility, testicular cancer, and various genital defects One of them is undescended testicles. Another one is a condition where the opening of the urethra is not where it should be. And all of these have to do with the development of the testes at the right time in pregnancy, which requires the right amount of testosterone. So they're all linked to interference with testosterone production, which is a hormone (laughs) produced by the endocrine system and which can be disrupted by endocrine disruptors. So it's a kind of ties all together. Those men who have poor reproductive function, say low sperm count, several studies have now shown that their overall mortality is higher. In other words, they will die earlier. But what's the evidence that chemicals are causing this? So that's really a great question and one that I and many, many, many people are looking at So you can interfere in two ways. You can interfere with the development in utero, which is a permanent change. You can interfere with the adult function, which is a transient, a temporary change. So for example, there's a famous story of men who were growing pineapples in Hawaii and in Israel using a chemical pesticide called DBCP, dibromochloropropane, and it turned out when the wives got together and talked about it, they were not getting pregnant. The men were tested. They had no sperm, zero sperm, azospermia, okay? Very severe adult interference, okay? They were taken off that job. The chemical was taken away, and their sperm function came back gradually, and after a while, they, it was restored. So that's a pesticide that interferes with sperm function in adulthood. Lead does that, x-ray does that. Many chemicals can interfere at high doses to adult function. What do you think we've seen in terms of regulatory action to clean up these chemicals in our environment? 
I'm somewhat encouraged by the fact that levels of the phthalates that we were most concerned about and wrote about in 2005, those chemicals have gone down in the urine of pregnant women, about 50%, which is really, really encouraging, which means that indeed there was some government action, although not for exposure in pregnancy, it was for children's toys, but okay, there was some government action. There was a lot of consumer concern, and I'm sure many manufacturers took the steps to reduce these chemicals in their products. So that is excellent. The downside is that for these chemicals, these phthalates, and also for, for bisphenol A, as those things have been taken out, you buy something bisphenol-free, then it's going to have bisphenol F and bisphenol S, which are substitutes which now we learn have similar action to bisphenol A. And we see that with the substitutes for phthalates too. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a moving target. So we say, okay, we'll show you that these things are harmful, and we do that, and we convince people to take them out of products, and then their substitutes are put in, which are not tested. So I would say the progress has been very slow, but not negligible. We have made progress. So what can people do on their own, then, to reduce exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals? I'll tell you a few things. One problem is, though, that they're more expensive. So if I say eat organic eat unprocessed food. There are segments of the population that can't do that. First of all, they might not have fresh food nearby. They might not have the money to pay for organic food, which is always more expensive. So I can say, yes, I would recommend eating organic, eating unprocessed food, because processing does introduce endocrine disruptors into food. We know that. Ideally, you would go to a farmer's market, you would buy organic produce, you would cook it yourself, and you would eat it right away. You wouldn't store in plastic, you wouldn't <laughs> ship in plastic, and so on. By the way, looking at the recycling codes on the bottoms of bottles and, and think products that are in your house is helpful. This is helpful thing. It says uh, four, five, one, and two, all the rest are bad for you, it has to do with the recycling code. So recycling codes four, five, one, and two, certainly not as bad as the others. You would be careful about what you put on your body. The sunscreens, the personal care products all contain endocrine disruptors. If you weren't sure, I would say you go to environmental working groups and they have a website you can put in a product and we'll tell you how many endocrine disruptors there are in there, how to, which ones are preferable. And I do that and I recommend that to my kids and my students. I would say I wouldn't cook. I don't cook in Teflon. I try to look at the chemical burdens of products that come into my home. And to the extent that we're told about these, you can't, by the way, on a can, see the phthalates that are in the product. You, you won't know that. So that's very difficult. That's why I'm saying you should eat unprocessed food to the extent possible. Dr. Swan, how scary is all of this? This uh, rather precipitous drop in sperm counts, the other effects of chemicals on our endocrine system. Just how much trouble are we in? I personally think it's a very serious problem, which is why I've spent the last 20 years trying to understand it and help people minimize it. I think that it's one of the major challenges that we're facing as a society, and it's something that people are not taking seriously enough. Shauna Swan is a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Dr. Swan. 
It was a pleasure, Steve. Nice to talk to you again. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you buy fish sticks or tilapia fillets, chances are they came from fish grown on a farm in China. But the rising middle class in China and the hunger in America for quick and convenient fish products have led to practices that can be unhealthy for both humans and the natural environment. Aquaculture dates back thousands of years in China, but surging demand has led in some cases to pollution and the overuse of antibiotics. We sent Beijing-based reporter Jocelyn Ford to the island of Hainan, a major base of aquaculture in South China, where fish farmers are using everything from high-tech to traditional medicine to clean up their industry. But first, she took a detour to Hollywood. <gasps> Dory. Dory? Which recently has been enjoying a boom in animated fish. No, I know where my parents are. They're in, um, uh, what's it called? The place, uh, you, uh, soap and lotion? Open ocean. Open ocean. Open ocean? I know where that is. Ah, the romance of colorful fish swimming freely in the wide open ocean. In the Disney version, the heroine is Dory. She triumphs when she escapes from human captivity and swims back to her parents. But in the real world, it is the captive fish that are heroes the fish on fish farms. They're saving the wild fish. With such a huge population in China, if we didn't have the aquaculture, if we totally relied on the wild fishery, I guess we would already running out of all these wild fish maybe 10 or 20 years ago. That's Han Han, the founder of the China Blue Sustainability Institute, China's first non-governmental environmental organization focused on sustainable fishing and aquaculture. Today, aquaculture accounts for one of every two fish that land on the dinner table worldwide, and it's growing faster than other sources of animal protein. China is the global aquaculture leader, and because of its expertise here, it wants to help other countries. Fisheries Bureau Deputy Director General Li Xuming says, well, We have many good aquaculture technologies that we would like to share with other developing countries because we know the fishing is not going to be sustainable. Aquaculture is expanding globally at about 5% a year, and that's a plus for some of the Earth's most pressing environmental issues. For example, compared to a pound of beef, a pound of fish has only about one-seventh of the carbon footprint. But large-scale aquaculture has created new problems. Naturally, farmed fish need to eat. And gone are the days when Chinese fish farms were all organic. Qi Genliu is a professor at Shanghai Ocean University. And traditionally, we use grass to culture grass carp. That changed with the growth of the fish feed industry and the need to feed carnivorous marine fish. Now we use feeds. It will 
and not only more efficient, but it also uh, save labor. About a quarter of global wild fish catch is used for fish meal or fish oil. So now many of the so-called trash fish, which include anchovies and the young of other species, are being overfished. Then there's the problem of water quality. In China, many farmers overstock their ponds and don't properly clean the water. Fish get sick. The farmers dump in antibiotics. Again, Han Han of the China Blue Sustainability Institute. We can produce all this seafood in such a low cost. It is because we have been industrialized to produce them in a massive scale. That can lower your new unit cost, but you didn't take into account the massive pollution. Hop into a taxi, drive around 90 minutes from Han Han's office, and you reach Wenchang. This is the capital of fish farming on China's tropical southern island of Hainan. The roads are lined with coconut palms and artificial ponds. There are square ponds the size of several volleyball courts and oblong ones as big as soccer fields. Fan Qingwei is a sea cucumber production manager. He agreed to give me an unauthorized tour of his former hatchery. What's this? That's cucumber. Is that one of your babies? So cute. Yeah. It's slimy. <laughs> Fan Qingwei's claim to fame Last year, he bred one and a half million baby sea cucumbers, a Chinese delicacy that is said to have health benefits. He takes me to the beach, a stone's throw beyond the hatchery's ponds. Uh, the water pour out a uh, pipe here. Mm-hmm. Let me go take a look. Okay. Oh, there's a crab. The hatchery is a few hundred feet from the ocean. Technically, that's a violation of recent regulations. The water is discharged without treatment. So the water's really sort of murky and brown and foamy, not great quality, huh? Yeah, not great quality. Depending on who you talk to, there are hundreds or thousands of such farms. Many are small, family-owned factories that operate under the radar screen. They release water back into the sea that is contaminated with fish waste, as well as leftover fish feed and medicines such as antibiotics. The concoction is like a witch's brew. It worries some experts, such as Tsai Yen. Antibiotics kill a lot of bacteria, so they reduce the diversity of the microbes in the environment. Professor Tsai Yen is an aquaculture researcher at Hainan University. You actually resulted in more stupid bacteria that you can't do anything with them. You know, you can't kill them. So if these bacteria, these super bacteria, go into the human system, okay, one day you get sick, you don't have any medicines to kill it. That is the big worry. Well, Professor Tsai Yen says there are no known cases in Hainan of humans getting sick from superbacteria. Marine technician Fan Qingwei says fish farmers are having problems. Medicines they once used when fish fell ill are no longer effective. Some farmers have seen big die-offs. The damaged environment has already hurt their profit. The government has taken action. It's banned the carcinogenic antibiotics and in Wenchang created a fund for a water treatment plant. The idea is that all the farmers could send their dirty water through the plant before it returns to the ocean. But with so many small operations, the project would be both costly and complicated, and it's unclear if it'll get off the ground. There also aren't enough inspectors to police every farm. But my visit to Fan Qingwei's hatchery suggests 
some government scare tactics are having an impact on reducing the use of antibiotics. It's lunch break. 30-year-old worker Huang Defu, in charge of shellfish at the hatchery, is busy with his cell phone. Please play the, the game in the cell phone. Wait for him to finish his game. The conversation turns to recent high-profile arrests of fish farmers. The government tests the fish. If they find you using illegal antibiotics, they might put you in jail. So the boss has ordered Huang Defu to use, instead, probiotics, the kind of good bacteria that's found, for example, in yogurt. Across the ocean, health-conscious consumers in America are also helping make farming practices here in China safer and more environmentally friendly. Trust the China is the largest single exporter of tilapia to the U.S. 95% of tilapia farmed on Hainan ends up on U.S. store shelves, much of it as fillets or fish sticks. So when a couple of years ago some of China's fish shipments to the U.S. were rejected due to unsafe antibiotics, exports took a hit. Companies like Gorton's try to reassure consumers with generic pledges on their website. But regaining trust isn't as simple as singing a jingle. Han Feng heads the two-year-old Hainan Tilapia Sustainability Alliance. He says for the tilapia industry, boosting quality is a matter of life or death. Since prices fall in 2014, we felt we're on the brink of the crisis. A number of small farmers and processing plants have gone out of business. Others are teetering. But the Chinese character for crisis, wei ji, also means opportunity. What we need to do now is to find out how to promote sustainable production in order to make use of the opportunity. We've already worked hard to make many people in the industry realize the importance of sustainability. Han Feng's association has found a partner in the island's most important export market. Two years ago, the fishing company, America's largest tilapia importer, stepped up to the plate. I should not be here, actually, right? But the reason I am here is... The founder and president of the fishing company, Manish Kumar, started coming to Hainan to build a coalition for a safer, more environmentally sound and sustainable tilapia industry. His company is sponsoring trainings and offering financial incentives to a few model farms that invest in improvements. The idea is others will follow suit if they see it makes financial sense. Many of the small fish farmers have no prior professional training, so the fishing company starts with simple things, like helping farmers keep records. They track weather conditions and water temperature, which affect fish health. And the farmers keep records of the feed and the medicine they use. The plan is to help more farmers get international certification by third parties. It's a brave, bold move for the industry leader, and a contrast to Manish Kumar's diffident demeanor. Hey, Jocelyn, I haven't probably warned you, but I'm extremely nervous. Uh, <laughs> is that, is that Am I scary? No, no, no. As America's largest tilapia importer and the supplier for Walmart, Manish Kumar has a lot at stake. I am gambling for the future prosperity 
of this industry, which has given me so much, which is my career, and I'm gambling against losing my reputation. And I'm gambling very hard for positive change. His ideas include increasing omega-3 levels in the tilapia, the fish oil that may help lower risk of heart disease, cancer, and arthritis. To help reassure customers who are nervous about what their fish are eating, next year he's planning a state-of-the-art oversight system that involves cameras, QR codes, and consumer monitoring. We will now proceed to do something no one in the industry has done before. Put a camera system into the farm area. A customer who buys a bag of fish, you have a QR code on the bag, run your smartphone through our QR code on the bag, and you will have a chance to see the actual farm that raised this fish in your bag and how it's been raised. Customers can see the type of feed and the plant where the feed was made, and insomniacs can watch the fish grow 24-7. Manish Kumar says the extra cost will be negligible. As the largest supplier of tilapia, he expects to be able to take advantage of economies of scale. I see, in the early part of next year, us having the ability to, through our packaging, give customers who have any, even a shred of doubt, feel better about what they're buying from us. And I challenge the rest of the industry to do it. And then the people who don't do it will be the ones on the hot seat. Meantime, the picture is different for Chinese consumers. They have more reason to be concerned about food safety than Americans. As of today, Chinese consumers don't have much of an appetite for frozen tilapia. Many prefer to purchase their fish live rather than frozen. But they are increasingly concerned about what goes into their food. And Han Feng of the Hainan Sustainable Tilapia Alliance sees that as an opportunity. On this day, Han Feng and his staff attended a lecture on how to build a brand. He thinks, as an island, Hainan can profit from the argument that its water is less polluted than water in other parts of China, where tilapia is farmed. We're at a turning point before Chinese were only concerned about how to get enough food to eat. Now, they want it to taste good and be healthy and safe. Meanwhile, some erstwhile consumers are taking matters into their own hands by producing fish they can trust. Not far from the sea cucumber hatchery, Zhang Meiyu is signaling to her fish that it's feeding time. She is improbably dressed in high heels, tight white pants, and a fashionable gray tunic. And she's wearing blue eyeshadow. Zhang beats the side of the tank and a large mob of fish swarm toward her. What kind of fish? It's also a grouper. Just over a year ago, Zhang vacationed on Hainan known as China's Hawaii. Then, on the spur of the moment, she decided to buy an abandoned fish hatchery. Within a month, she'd relocated to the island. I had been in business. I didn't understand fish. I'd never touched one. But I discovered all the farmed fish back home was frightening. Even if you give it to me, I won't eat it. Zhang had a dream. She wanted to have safe fish and create a brand that others could have confidence in. She believed she could do so by using a new version of an ancient practice, Chinese herbal medicine, but for fish. Everyone laughed at me and said I was crazy. 
they don't trust Chinese herbal medicine. Zhang Yumei is a pioneer in her neighborhood, but Chinese scientists have been researching how to farm fish using Chinese herbal medicine for many years. Dr. Guo Weiliang conducts experiments at Hainan University. After we noticed the, the bad effects of antibiotics, and then we, we realized maybe we can do something else, like for example, this Chinese herb thing. China has been using herbs for human treatment for thousands of years, and Dr. Guo is applying the know-how to fish using Western scientific techniques. The approach is preventative. The idea is to boost the immune system before the fish get sick. At the hatchery, Zhang had a steep learning curve. In the early days, she lost a lot of fish because she failed to recognize when they weren't feeling well. Today, she's proud of her results. In the last half year, she's only had four deaths. When we discover the fish are about to get sick, we take action. Zhang says the herbal treatment costs more than cheap antibiotics. But in the long run, she believes she'll come out ahead and other farmers will want to copy her. Professor Guo says, however, it will be a while before the cost of herbal treatments certified for fish will come down. For one, there are not enough researchers knowledgeable about fish, Chinese medicine, and agriculture. And those that are are likely to find more lucrative jobs. But the government is concerned about the quality of the fish and the falling tilapia exports. Fisheries Bureau Deputy Director General Li Xumin says he'd like Americans to eat more tilapia, and he emphasizes that not only the government, but also industry is now doing safety inspections before exporting to the U.S. At the end of the day, it may well be increasingly affluent and health-conscious Chinese consumers who start driving the change. Back in Beijing at this Chairman Mao-themed restaurant, an itinerant singer belts out songs for $7 a pop. My dinner party goes to a white-tiled fish tank as big as a queen-size bed to choose our dinner, live. Our dinner has a tiny green fish-shaped tag on its fin with a QR code. So you just scanned it? And what, what, is it, what does it tell us? It's just a, like a phone number who sold this fish. If you call that number, of course that person is going to say the fish is authentic. He sold this fish. It's a gimmick. Like anyone could fake this anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is not like the third you know, party, like supervision, something. But if Manish Kumar's fishing company's idea catches on of giving consumers 24-7 access to witness just how the fish got to their table... You can bet Chinese consumers will want the same thing for fish they put on their plates. And once that happens, the economies of scale could take over. And that might make environmentally friendly farmed fish more affordable for all. For Living on Earth, I'm Jocelyn Ford in Beijing. One of the most glorious sights of tropical oceans is the vision of the magnificent frigate bird soaring over the waves. But as Mary McCann points out in today's bird note, sometimes the way these fork-tailed creatures behave is, well, less than magnanimous. Some birds are masters at catching fish. In the warmer regions of the world's oceans, large seabirds called boobies plunge headfirst into the water, snatching fish in their dagger-shaped bills. But as a booby flies up from the waves, with a fish now in its gullet, there may be another big seabird, a frigate bird waiting overhead, with its eye on the booby and on the booby's fresh catch. 
Now begins one of nature's great chase scenes. The booby flaps full throttle away from the frigate bird, but there's no escaping. With a light body suspended on long, narrow wings and a long, scissor-like tail to match, the frigate bird is faster and more agile. It lopes up behind the frantic booby and, with its long, slender, hooked bill, clamps onto the booby's tail or a wingtip. Thus snagged in midair, the booby flails. A crash is imminent unless it surrenders what the frigate bird wants. So it disgorges the fish it's just captured. The frigate bird releases the booby and swiftly snatches the free-falling fish. Fortunately for boobies, frigate birds don't steal all their meals. Most of the time, they hunt their own seafood, perhaps a squid snapped from the ocean's surface or a flying fish as it skims across the waves. But now and again, when a chance comes up, they'll take it. I'm Mary McCann. And for photos, soar on over to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, camels are common in deserts, but the Gobi Desert of Mongolia has camels and grizzly bears. That's ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Grizzly bears can be huge and fearsome beasts, not to be messed with when you're out in wild country. Their range extends across western North America and through much of Asia. There's even a tiny population of grizzly bears that roams the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, notable for their shocking coats of bright gold fur. Wildlife biologist and writer Douglas Chadwick spent many seasons with a team traveling in the Gobi to photograph and learn more about these creatures that seem to defy all odds. He's the author of Tracking Gobi Grizzlies, and he joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Glad to be here. Hey, uh, tell me about your fascination with grizzly bears. In your book, you explain that your interest in grizzlies began way before you arrived in the Gobi. What sparked that fascination? Well, I was like most people, Steve. I knew the stories. I knew the There I Was movies, the little pioneer girl getting chased by the big bear. I carried a big 44 Magnum on my hip and worried a lot when I first started hiking in bear country. And one day I watched three bears. It was a mother sliding down a snowbank in the summer. It was a hot afternoon. I'd been doing the same thing. And then she went back up to the top of the snowbank and put her two cubs on her lap and slid down on her back with them. And then they went up and did it again. And this went on for about 20 minutes. And by the end of that, I said, I like these people. I want to know more about them. I don't think the stories and everything I've been told is giving me any kind of reasonable picture of one of the master mammals out here with me. <laughs> now, how did you learn that there was a population of grizzly bears living in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia? I mean, this is, you know, a lot of rocks and expansive deserts, not a place that I think of grizzlies. Not a place I would have thought of grizzlies. And I was thinking about bears while I was hiking in northwestern Mongolia in the mountains in a place that looked a lot like Montana with forests and glaciers up above on the border of Russia and Kazakhstan. And I was tracking snow leopards on a story for National Geographic. 
And my translator, who is a woman working for the Snow Leopard Trust, told me, we, well, we weren't seeing any brown bears, which are the same as grizzly bears. And I had expected we might because we were hot on the trail of snow leopards. There were ibex watching us from the cliffs. It was just that kind of place. But the bears had been pretty much shot out. And she happened to mention, well, we also got these other grizzly bears in Mongolia. And I said, where? And she said, in the Gobi Desert. And I said, we've got a communication problem. I thought you just told me there were grizzly bears living in the Gobi Desert. And she said, my father happens to be the director of the great Gobi Strictly Protected Area, and he has studied them for 30 years. And I said, okay. Next question is, how many of these kinds of bears are there in Mongolia? And she said, about 30. I said, now that's in Mongolia. How many are there? And she said, they're all in Mongolia and nowhere else. There are 30 Gobi grizzly bears left in the world. So then you had to go. So describe to me the first time you actually got to sight a Gobi grizzly in the wild. And how did you react? Well, it's small and lean compared to our North American grizzly bears. It has wildly mussed up, I call it bed hair, sticking out <laughs> all over the place. And it's very much a grizzly. We would catch them in a box trap in order to place satellite radio collars on them. And yet, even a tranquilized Gobi grizzly, it was clear to me the power of the bear is the same as the ones we live with here. And certainly as it came out of the drug, it started smashing up the trap and then proceeded to chase off a large van full of Mongolians and a couple of Americans that was uh, five times its size. I said, yeah, that's a grizzly. But it smelled <laughs> sweet. It smelled like dust. It smelled like plants that had been digging. Its breath was warm. It had these stubby claws that said at a glance, I have been walking on rocks all my life, and I have been digging through gravels to find roots. And I am a beat up, thirsty, dusty bear on the outer edge of possibility, but I'm here. So why were you in the Gobi at that time, by the way? I had been invited to come down and join a research team of Americans and Mongolians, small group. I joined in 2011. I intended to just go over and learn about these bears and write about them based on one season. And the season is after they wake up in the spring and before June arrives, because by then it's getting to be close to 100 in the day and any animal captured in a trap is subject to heat stress. So we quit and we go home. The project leader and others go back again to the Gobi in the fall and just simply track the animals. But I went over for five springs in a row and spent a month there, camped out, not sure where I was half the time, but camped out somewhere where we could access three or four oases, set up traps there, and then spend the day tracking them through the countryside, observing other wildlife, finding out these little details like Gobi bears often drink from pools that have been dug by the wild asses with their sharp hooves. So if you're not saving wild asses, you may not be able to save Gobi bears. You mentioned that they're small. Uh, why are they so small? Well, it's pretty hard to get big on, <laughs> on 
a diet of wild rhubarb, wild onions, lizards, beetles, occasionally scavenging the carcass of a larger animal, but everything is few and far between, both plants and animals. And that number I gave you of 30 is probably an underestimate. It looks as though there are three to possibly four dozen. And it also looks as though they have been increasing very slightly since the study started in 2005. So talk to me about the harsh environment, the outdoor environment there in the Gobi, so dissimilar from the ones where nearly every other grizzly population is located. In the warm time of the year, it could be, what, 120 degrees? And then in the winter, it could be, what, minus 40, huh? It can be minus 40 with a heck of a wind coming off the Gobi Altai Mountains. And the bears do hibernate there, and their cycle is a lot like the one you'd find here with the bears in Montana in Glacier Park. So, Doug, there are just perhaps as many as three dozen, maybe four dozen of these bears. That's not many bears. Originally, how many would there have been there, and what happened? You know, it's a little like asking how many bison or how many grizzlies used to be in North America. Nobody knows because we blew through them so quickly. And there are estimates, and that's all you can have. And look, Gobi bears were not discovered or proven to exist until 1943. And that's simply a tribute to the size of the Gobi and the difficulty of living there and the fact that it was still just barely beginning to be explored around the early 1900s. And the Gobi bear was a myth. It was like Bigfoot or Sasquatch or something. There was something big and hairy roaming around out there that occasionally walked on two legs. And so, I can't give you the number of how many would have been around. I doubt it was in the thousands, but it might have been. I understand that the part of the conservation project helps the bears by feeding. How, how exactly do you feed a grizzly? Well, first of all, I spend a lot of time in Montana working with biologists and state and federal agency people going around telling people, please do not feed the bears. And a fed bear is a dead bear because it learns to get food near humans, and that's not a good strategy for staying alive. And suddenly I find myself not only in the back of beyond, riding around in a Russian-made van with a small herd of Mongols wondering what I'm doing, but we're going out to feed grizzly bears. And what you do is dump sacks of livestock chowder or chow into a big bin with a trough on the bottom, and put it near the oasis. They don't depend on it, but there's a lot of draught ears, and it's not getting any better in a warming, drying climate. Doug, how is the Mongolian government responding to these conservation efforts for the Gobi grizzlies? The Mongolian government, the best way to say this is in 2013, the Mongolian declared that the year of the Gobi bear which they call mazalai. And there were, there's even a mazalai vodka you can buy, and there's mazalai bread. And they know about the golden grizzlies of the Gobi Desert, and they want to preserve them. It's just that nobody had any, inf- okay, we all want to save them. How? What do they need? What can be done? They've improved some of the water sources. They've got some solar-powered pumps that work. They've even tried cloud seeding in the area. We work with university scientists from Mongolia. We've had the Minister of the Environment come down and join the team. 
they're more than willing to help. So how well are these efforts going? Um, how it's going is the story I really wanted to tell, and that was the main incentive for the book. It's on the upswing. And some of the happiest moments of my life have been standing out, even in a dust storm and bitter cold winds, but checking the images on an automatic camera set up near the feeder. And as you scroll through them, all of a sudden, there are two baby bears with a mom. So they are reproducing. We're also finding more bears by the way you count them is obviously not going to cover an area five times the size of Yellowstone Park, but you can collect hair, and that count is going up by the year. So it's very encouraging. And recently, the Mongolian government just set aside a large reserve. It links this Great Gobi Strictly Protected Area, where all the last bears are, through this new reserve to Gobi Gurvan Saikon, which means Three Jewels National Park. And that is a bit wetter. It's got more vegetation. And it is a former range of the bears. And if they can connect through there back into that former range, I think they'll do well. Really, this story isn't just about how do you save a goby bear. It's how could you turn your back once you know they're there? You have to help somehow. That's how I felt. But more importantly, it's like if we can pull this off, it says something about all those big animals out there, so many of which are at risk around the world. Douglas Chadwick is a wildlife biologist and author of Tracking Gobi Grizzlies. Doug, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Well, thank you so much for the time. And I don't know how else Gobi bears are ever going to be heard about or known by the rest of the world. And I'm glad for the opportunity. Thank you. And we stay with bears for this next story. This time, it's a different bear of a color as different as night and day. We're up in the north of Canada, in Hudson Strait, on the island of Akbatok, noted for its polar bears, as well as 700-foot-high limestone cliffs where the thick-billed myrrh nest. They're a species of auk with stubby penguin-like wings whose nests lure the great white bears who also live there. But as our explorer-in-residence, Mark Seth Lender, observed, Sometimes the bears seem to contemplate other potential sources of nourishment. He is big and white and perfect. That kind of polar bear a certain kind of hunter wants to see, mounted on a wall. All things being equal, you can be certain. Bear's the one bringing all the trophies home. Two weeks and the fledgling thick-billed myrrh will begin to fall from their hard rock nests on Akbatok in the sheer limestone wall. Unable to fly, they will tumble five, six, seven hundred feet straight down, aiming for water. Lucky for the ones who make it, the others, manna and feathers. That's what Bear is waiting for. And Bear, no doubt, is tired of waiting. Up he goes, walking the loose detritus of the talus mound, the slope steep as an avalanche, though to bear with his wide-gripping feet the incline might as well be level ground. A hundred yards high, bear sits down. 
He looks about, as if he's enjoying the view, though there is no view. Only the blank face of an ocean just as well admired from below, and with nothing to eat, there is nothing for bear to do. No reason for the climb, the calories burned, this particular place, no apparent cause for bear's demeanor, and that lolling, lazy look on his face. The plane curls round the corner, in close, wing high, not more than 30 meters between the vertical of the cliff and the fuselage, looking for polar bear, but entering the space from the wrong side. They had no way of knowing bear was there. Yet there he is. Right altitude, right attitude to look straight into the little windows like seal holes in the ice and the funny, chewy little faces pressed against the plexiglass. Nice. Very nice. And the Rolls-Royce engines hit the red line with a growl that even a polar bear cannot match and the plane levels out again and vanishes at a couple of 300 knots. Bear does not run. Though I've seen bigger ones than him take off like a shot with far less provocation. Instead, Bear lies down, his chin resting on those huge white paws, like some guy stretched out on the couch. Late in the afternoon, the same airplane makes another pass. Same approach, same altitude, same distance off the cliff. Bear is not there. There are no polar bears at all. And I wonder, as they disappear into the clouds, all those paying customers and all the money they just spent, really, who's the entertainment? Our resident explorer, Mark Seth Lender. And there are photos of this close encounter of the ursine kind at our website, LOE.org. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Matt Hoish, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Olivia Reardon, Helen Palmer, Rebecca Rettelmeyer, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger and Jake Rigo engineered our show. Allison Lerestein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Also from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.